Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the May 5th episode of Poets and Muses. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can follow us on SoundCloud, Instagram, as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Sean Avery. He and I will be discussing his poem, Boys Are Meant to Be Touched, and my poem, Indelible in the Hippocampus. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Valley during the week of May 6th. On Monday, May 6th, from 5 to 10 p.m., Savannah Lutman and Phoenix Fiber events will be hosting their Wherever Fiber Charity Open Mic series. For the next three weeks, the series will be benefiting a nonprofit during each week. So please come and support that effort at Thirst Space, which is at 1028 Grand Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic is between 3 and 6.30. On Tuesday, May 7th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center, which is at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 7 to 8.30 p.m., Omair and Film Bar Phoenix will be hosting their improvised poetry orchestra at Film Bar, which is at 815 North 2nd Street in Phoenix. From 7 to 10 p.m., Richard Nyhill will be hosting his weekly I Am Hologram open mic at Irene's Tap Room, which will be at 1227 East Northern Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 6 30. From 8 to 11 p.m., King Kong is hosting his weekly The Underground Experience at 2601 on Central, which is at 2601 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7.30 p.m. On Thursday, May 9th, from 5 to 6.30 p.m., the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences Humanities Division at ASU will be hosting a celebration of Bojan Lewis, who recently joined their faculty. This will be taking place at the Crescent Ballroom, which is at 308 North 2nd Avenue in Phoenix. From 7 to 9 p.m., Long Gnome Publishing will be hosting its weekly Phoenix Poetry Slam at the Lost Leaf, which is at 914 North 5th Street in Phoenix. Make sure to get there by 6.50 to participate. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quinton Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Jobot Coffee and Bar at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7.30. Friday, May 10th, from 7 to 9.30 p.m., Shantae O'Ryan, Bill Campana, and Jack Evans will be hosting their monthly Caffeine Corridor open mic and poetry series at 9 The Gallery, which is at 1229 Grand Avenue in Phoenix. Make sure to get there by 6.45 to read. On Saturday, May 11th, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., I, along with a number of poets and muses guests, such as Rosaura Magana, Freddy Lopez, and Dirty Red, will be tabling and reading at the Her Museum's Second Saturday Books, Beats, and Bites event. 
Come say hi, make some crafts and zines, and listen to amazing authors and poets read. Then stick around for the delicious indigenous food. Again, that will be from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Her Museum at 2301 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. This is a free event. From 10:30 a.m. to 12:30 p.m., Rosemary Dombrowski and another poets and muses poet guest. Denai Barnes will be conducting poetry and poses at Totem Yoga, which is at 3201 North 16th Street, Suite 16 in Phoenix. From 5 to 7 p.m., Creative Youth of Arizona and Reframe Youth Arts Center will be hosting its information meeting about the Phoenix Youth Poet Laureate Program. Applications are already open for that, but you can find out more information about that during the meeting at Palabras Bilingual Bookstore at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. From 5 to 10 p.m., Sozo Coffee House will be hosting an open mic night at 1982 North Elma School Road in Chandler. On Sunday, from 1:30 to 2:30 p.m. Connect and Heal will be hosting its monthly poetry workshop at the Chandler Public Library at 22 South Delaware Street in Chandler. From 3 to 5 p.m., follow Connect and Heal to Improv Mania, where they will be hosting their monthly open mic with a Mother's Day theme at 250 South Arizona Avenue in Chandler. From 6 to 9 p.m. Infuse Open Mic will be taking place at Phoenix Center for the Arts at 1202 North Third Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 5:30. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Sean Avery. Hi, Sean. Hey. Very nice to have you on Poets and Muses. Yes, thank you, Amanda. Thanks. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Sean Avery. I'm a poet and a rapper. And currently a teacher at a high school in South Phoenix.、Mm-hmm. I'm from Arizona, kind of by default, because my dad is or was Air Force. Okay. So I've lived in Arizona the majority of my life, but before I lived here, I bounced around a lot of different places. Oh, okay. Overseas, a couple different states.、Mm-hmm. So I've always kind of felt not necessarily like I was from Arizona, but more so I was from a community of people that I built here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's better to have a chosen family.、Right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you're the third poet guest from a military family.、Oh. You're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> And can you tell us what you teach? Yeah, I actually teach a class titled Hip Hop Poetry. Oh, nice! My school, South Point, it's a charter school,、mm-hmm. uh, public charter, so it's not like you know, like one of those expensive schools. Right. right.、Uh, what that means basically is that I have freedom when it comes to curriculum. So、right. in the class, I design myself and、mm-hmm. I link it to what's called Common Core standards. That's、mm-hmm. I think Common Core might be used across the nation now, but、right. it's what we use in Arizona for sure. So I just link it to. Standards and、nice. find ways to teach. I would say more so like contemporary poetry,、mm-hmm. as well as like hip hop culture and music, you know, dating from like the seventies to now. Yeah, yeah. And you have a poem about hip hop, a history、yes. of hip hop. Yes. Which I feel like very out of my depth, so that's why I didn't choose that. <laughs> <laughs> Valid. You know. 
Yeah, no, I want you to explain that to me at some point because you raised a lot of interesting points, as you always do, I think, in your poetry. But I was just like, I'm not sure if I understand it well enough to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I'm sure that there's poems of yours that I might forget to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I appreciate the honesty and that you still like the poems that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was great and made good references. I could tell not only from other people's reactions, but also how you weave everything together. It's just like, oh, maybe I should know this. And, you know, you have mentioned about women doing hip-hop as well in the poem, so it was really, like, cool. I'm glad you mentioned that. Anyway, before we tease the audience too much with the other poem, let's let's go into this poem. So when did you start writing poetry? I think that I've been writing poetry probably since about 14 or 15 years old, but I've been writing poetry, I guess, seriously. Mm-hmm. I would say maybe like age 21, 22, something like that, mm-hmm. where I really decided that I'm going to dedicate my time to this craft. And mm-hmm. Also, I'm going to put my money-making eggs in an artistic basket. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Sometimes you kind of have to, right? Because otherwise you're kind of scattered. Yes. Yeah. You're making inroads. Yeah, it seems yeah. like it. Yeah. I'm doing good. I'm yeah. here. Good, good, good. <laughs> I'm glad. And we'll talk about that at the end as well. So you brought your poem, Boys Are yes, Meant to yes. Be Touched. Um, I have it. If you don't mind reading that yeah. for us, and then we can talk about it. Okay. Boys Are Meant to Be Touched. Hannah Piner is a blonde girl I have a crush on in third grade. Wear at recess. The new kid, Antonio, is black making four black boys at school, including myself. Hannah flirts with Antonio, and Antonio flirts back. Hannah does not flirt with me. All the boys dash around the jungle gym like race cars scattering across a track without boundaries, up the middle, under the bridge, over the bars. We have infinite gas. We go, 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 running from Hannah, all the boys, Two of us black running from Hannah as she gropes with her forklift hand, wanting to lift us up and examine our underparts like the underbelly of a race car, touch us where we're soft, the squishy of a young boy. I've been touched before and I said, no, stop, I don't like it. I've been touched before and I said, no, stop, I don't like it. I've been in the fist of a girl delicate as a freshly picked flower stem. I run from Hannah, but I want to be touched, want to see myself in the lines of her open palm like a marker on loose leaf paper, want to be felt, want to grow fat as a pickle. I hate pickles. I hate myself for saying no, stop. I don't like it. Why don't I like it? Why didn't I want her hands, her hands, her hands? Hannah chases Antonio, chases Antonio like a cop car in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. He steers his body around the jungle gym with Hannah in hot pursuit, up the middle, under the bridge, over the bars. He revs up the slide where Hannah catches him. She unzips his pants. He stopped. His feet are not moving. He likes it. Is this a game? Can we stop? Her hand is wrist 
down deep his jeans, he laughs, and she smiles a tight-lipped smile. Her hair is a broom head covering a scarecrow face, and scarecrows mean stop. She does not stop. Why did I want her to stop? I park in neutral up the ramp by the slide. I'm hanging in the wind how I imagine bananas hang from trees. Her hand is spidering across my zipper, curling like a spider's molt, but her hand is clammy and cold, a towelette tapping me. I giggle. I like it. I like it. Hannah Piner touched Antonio and all the boys during recess, and we liked it because boys are meant to be touched. Boys are meant to go. Boys are meant to be touched and liking. Thank you. Can I ask you, when did you write this? Um, probably, I think I wrote the beginning of what this poem is now, maybe like two years ago, mm-hmm. year and a half. Mm-hmm. I was working on a play and hip-hop album titled Skinny Black. Mm-hmm. And in the process of writing that, I wrote kind of like a loose autobiography. Mm-hmm. And this was something that was in that autobiography. Mm-hmm. And then Skinny Black was released in October 2018. Mm-hmm. Then sometime in February or March, I think, of 2019, I revisited a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that never made this Skinny Black project. Mm-hmm. And I found the story to be pretty important to me mm-hmm. to tell, I think. And it also was a way for me to talk about a deeper trauma but still feel distant from it right. um, and still kind of make the same point that I'm trying to make mm-hmm. <laughs> about the way that society assumes that boys and men are like impervious to sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just picked this out of a lot of other texts and decided to kind of sharpen it and cut and cut and cut and cut. And I'm actually still working on this. Right. There's another version after this, but it's not finished. Mm. And it's also not the one that you heard, so that's why I did redo it. Right, okay. How long did it take you to get to this version? You know, I probably revisited this actually more like January. Mm -hmm. And then between January and March, I think, I got it to this form. Right. So I, but I wasn't working on it consistently from right. January to March. Uh, I worked on it in January and I left it alone. I looked at it again in March, and it was really when I decided to do the story slam at Wordplay right. that I brought this back out and worked on it again. So the story slam was in what February? The first March. It was March. Both of them were in March. First round was in February. I think. Okay. Yes. And the, yes. the last one where we were in front of people was right. a lot, lot of people. Yeah, more people. Yeah. <laughs> more people. A hundred people, I think, right? Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, around February, when I decided to do, I guess, the first round of the story slam is when I really kind of kicked it into gear with this poem. What? Was that the first time you read it in front of people? Yes. <laughs> wow. It was. How did it feel? It was less terrifying than I expected it to be. Okay. I felt pretty confident. I think that I omitted a lot of things in the moment mm. to feel safe. I think considering the audience, you know, it's a very, it's a very overwhelming white audience. So mm. I don't 
really feel the most comfortable fully exploring the intersection of like race and gender that this poem does right in front of a majority white audience at least in the way that it's written here mm-hmm. so yeah there were some things that I admitted and I definitely changed the way I read it a lot okay yeah definitely for them yeah it was faster when you yes. read it in front of them and I know there was something that you didn't read but it was a very short bit and I don't remember what it was mm. but this time I hear something that I didn't hear from last time do you know what it was I know that I omitted this extra little bit here I think uh, two of us black running yes. from Hannah yeah because I remember I think you just mentioned in the beginning that with Antonio, it makes four black boys yes. in the class. And that was part, I think that was it. Oh yeah. My God, there was another mention of it. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I definitely, I took that out. And there's something else somewhere that I can't remember right now. But it's something else that another time that I mentioned Antonio that I took out. I think I took okay. out this maybe last time. So I think I said Hannah Piner touched all the boys. I skipped his name. Oh, okay. Yeah, there was yeah. small, small things, but in the moment they felt very significant. <laughs> right, no, no. I think you're right to protect yourself because yeah. it's such a hard story to tell. Right? Yeah. I mean, my poem that I'm going to read, I read it once at a slam, and I'm never going to read it at a slam. I think I mentioned to you that night that there are poems, actually I was referring to this specific poem, is yeah. that I don't want anyone to assign a numerical value to it. Yes. So. Yeah. Just doesn't feel right. Yeah, yeah. Getting into the weeds a little bit, you were one of four black boys in that particular class. This is yes. this incident is by autobiographical, right? Yes. So, do you remember how many in the class? The whole class? What size was? This is elementary school. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I actually mentioned my. Oh, I say third grade. So yeah, we were the first students at that elementary school. Now what? Uh, it had just opened. Oh, okay. So it was the first class, first so, yeah, year. Yeah, so okay. We were, the, we were the first. There was no students. I mean, you know, there was like a fifth and a fourth grade and second grade and first grade, but like everyone that was the first year the school was open. Okay. okay. Yeah. So when I think about how many specifically black boys there were, I mean. Myself, there was my friend Quincy, he's actually still my friend today. Mm-hmm. Another boy named Julius, and then another boy who in this poem is named Antonio. Okay. It's not his actual name. Right. Well, that was nice of you to change it. Yeah, and I changed also the girl's name too. Right. Very slightly. Both of these names are slight changes. <laughs> right. Uh, the actual names sound almost exactly the same. Yeah, there was just not, and you know what, I can't even remember how many girls there were at my school. I know that my sister went to my school and she was well, you know, my sister's three years younger than me, so in third grade she was probably still in kindergarten or about to go to first grade. So what was your class size though? The overall class size? (laughs) I know my memory is not that good, I think. It's okay. I mean if you don't remember don't worry about it. It's fine. I feel like it was small though. Like it was small, I want to say not much more than a hundred. Your particular class, wow. Yeah, just the third grade class, I think. Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean, or do you mean like sort of like the class, like with that with that one specific teacher? I guess not the entire third grade, but whatever class you are in with uh, Hannah and Tony. Yeah. Oh yeah, there was less black boys in that class actually. So. Also, when you were talking, you were talking about the entire third grade. Yeah. Okay. okay. And <laughs> well, was, that's still yeah. you know, so, very few. <laughs> yeah, I think in that particular class, it's probably just two. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I think it was myself and uh, a boy named Julius. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that would say. I mean, I mean, there's probably like forty kids. 
Okay. 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 That makes sense. I was thinking, what's happened to public education that you think a hundred people is a small class? So, so you um, read the whole grade. I, I was like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, no. Totally <laughs> no, yeah. Public education is pretty well. At my school, I have a roster of forty-six students oh, okay. from one of my classes. Okay. That's one. Period. One. Jeez. You pay attention to them all. It's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you're probably, well, you're like an octopus in your real life, yeah, right? Yeah, very, very life. much so. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting when I'm teaching, you know, and I'm helping a student. It's like, Mr. Medlin, Mr. Medlin, Mr. Medlin. It's like, whoa. <laughs> one at a time. There's, there's one of me. There's 40 of you. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. I don't think I can, I can do that. I've been recommended to go teach. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I'll be 100% honest with you. If you're going to teach, just don't do it in Arizona. I don't know if other places are much better. I mean, I definitely hear statistics about Arizona and also anecdotal things, but I'm not sure if that, you know, statistical difference translates to oh, actually translate? yeah. that much of a difference in real life. Is yeah, what I'm that's, so. that's, that's totally fair. It's totally fair. I, I think, you know, a lot of it is about where you're teaching at. Yeah, I mean, maybe private school or tutor or having a small class. But anyway, this is, this is not about me and anything. Sure, <laughs> I get it, yeah, and we sh- really, it, it's a good conversation to have, and it's a conversation we should be having nationally and yeah. also locally, because okay. we depend on a good public education system, uh, many people do, and many people are not getting the education that they should have in order for our country to thrive, so, but uh, we're not going to have that conversation now. <laughs> So just going back to your story, if you don't mind telling us about why you decided to write this. It was three years ago, but if you remember. Mm -hmm. Well, so Skinny Black is the most recent project that I just put out. Mm -hmm. And it's about sort of my experience at the intersection of race, sexuality, and gender. Mm -hmm. So in order to create the project, I kind of just did a total reflection on Mm. all of the significant events in my life that relate to that intersection Mm -hmm. or those intersections and this was definitely one of them Mm -hmm. I wrote about many 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 traumatic things in the process of creating Skinny Black Mm -hmm. and a lot of them didn't make the actual project because I decided ultimately I chose I think joy over trauma Mm-hmm. Um, for that specific project right. just because I felt like I wasn't ready at the time to work with these memories and turn them into art, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was one of many things that didn't make it, but I did, after the project, pick it back up. Right. Going back to the reading in public again, do you think this is something that you will be reading again in like a slam or a scoring setting? I don't know about that. I mean, I don't really slam. I, when I was a teenager, I was mm-hmm. all about slamming. I slammed all the time. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the story slam was the first time I slammed in years. Mm-hmm. Four, five years, maybe. Right. So I don't plan on really reading anything to be scored again in the oh, near okay. future. Okay. I don't really plan on returning to slam. Right. You know, I guess there's a small chance it could happen, but... Right. I don't foresee it right now. But I do foresee me reading a version of this poem again in the future, yeah. Right. I think that if I can find, you know, as I'm walking a thin line between, like, trying to feel safe and trying to be vulnerable. Right. And if, I think if I can find that balance that feels comfortable, then I will definitely 
Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, it's that finding the balance and ultimately why I decided to never read that forest slam ever again. Because yeah. it was so painful to get scores for that. Yeah, it just hurts. Yeah, it really does. I didn't really want to listen to the scores from mine, and I don't remember what I scored. Yeah. I remember very intentionally being like, okay, the scores are being read, and I just kind of tried to tune out. You did? Yeah. Well, it was a good thing we were sitting in the back. That kind of helped a little helps, bit. Helps a little bit, yeah. Yeah. So, it's, it's, there's just so much pain. Slam, in particular, that setting, is the people want to hear the most visceral things, but I'm not sure they're very aware of the fact that in judging those, yeah. they're unintentionally, I feel like, but they're still, it's still, it's valuing something, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's putting it on a scale. It's just yeah. strange. It's like, yeah, it is. Yeah. The reality about slam is, you know, you can't escape the fact that it's a competition and that someone is putting a value or a numerical value to your art. You know, I think that the best slams and the best hosts of slams do a really good job reminding the audience that this is still very personal art. Mm-hmm. We should value and respect all of this art equally. I think they also do a good job of sort of sometimes mocking the system, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. They have ways in which yeah. they lessen the, the reality of it, I think. But Yeah, I felt like Tomas did that yeah. throughout the night. He did that yeah. at least twice, I Yes, so yes, yes. Yeah, everybody was telling very painful personal stories. Yeah. Yeah. A lot a lot of that went on stage. Yeah. <laughs> Man, we just opened our rooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, slam is kind of gladiatorial. Yeah, you, you know, honestly, I think slam is a lot of trauma porn. Yes, thank you, yes. Yeah, I think that's a lot of slam. I know that I read that poem for me. I read both of my people. I read it. Every piece that I did, and the first story slam and the second one, mm-hmm. I did for myself because mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. And I didn't really care about winning. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, winning was cool. And actually, I didn't even realize what the prize was, mm-hmm. which I thought that was really cool because it was an opportunity to create a chapbook pretty much and just have all the funding handled. You know? And I was like, right. oh, wow, that's actually a really, really cool prize. Yeah, it's a good prize. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. But I didn't even know that until, you know, 15, 10 minutes before the thing started. Oh, right, when he was announcing Yeah, yeah, yeah. when he was talking to us <laughs> in the back room. Yeah. And also, to be transparent, had I known that, <laughs> I might have uh, treated the slime very differently. Mm. But not knowing that, my goal was to read this piece for the first time in public. That was my major goal. Mm. Um, and, I, and I did that. Testing the waters, kind of, by jumping into the deep end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, hey, given our ambitions, I think, you know, we, we have to, and also we're artists, and one of the things is that we have to be risk-takers. Totally, totally. Yeah. And um, I want to share, one of my therapy goals was to talk publicly about sexual assault. Yeah. Um, and so that was a therapy that I was in a while ago, probably a year or more. Mm-hmm. And that day, the day I read this, was the first day that I fulfilled that goal. That's great. Um, so, yeah, I definitely have intentions other than getting tense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, as you said, it's really important to tell the story not only of assault from the male perspective, as someone who's on the receiving end of it, unfortunately, but also the intersectionality of it. 
yeah. being a boy of color, being assaulted. But if I understood you correct, you're using this particular story as a vehicle towards the other yeah. experience. Yeah. So to be a bit more transparent, I was sexually assaulted when I was very young. Mm-hmm. And I have written about that. I have a couple pieces about that, but those also have not ever. People have read them before. Mm-hmm. And I've read them to people very, very close to me. Right. Partners, my sister. Right. I think that's about it. But I've never performed them. Right. I've never been public. This particular instance was sort of little kids being little kids, I think. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, this is very much a true story. We were running around the playground. This girl was trying to judge all these little boys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of this is also, it's a poem. It's embellishment, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, this event, to me, wasn't even that traumatic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that when I when I reflected on it as an adult, right. and I realized sort of how odd it was and strange, even that that was like socially acceptable, right. you know, like I wonder like where were the adults on the playground? Like, right. You know, I just had all these questions like why are these third graders trying to touch each other like that? <laughs> like, right. Why is that appropriate? Right. right. Like why is that a game? Right. Um, right. Specifically, like with this group of boys. Yeah. Specific um, group. Right, yes, the the color dynamics, not just the gender dynamics, and the way that you've written and the way that you present it. We definitely see that obviously, this girl, you wonder what kind of environment she came from that she felt this was okay, and what kind of boundary intruding incidents she herself had to deal with. Yes, and especially. I thought you really bring it to life in the expressions that you describe, the expressions on her face while she was doing this, that normally you think when kids are just exploring their own bodies as well as each other's bodies, perhaps that is not the expression that they would be showing on their faces. Right. Maybe more curiosity rather than like a form of control, but also pain, her own pain too. Yes. So I just really love how you brought all these details to the fore and you know, so few words. Thank you. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Do you want to talk a bit more about how you wanted to explore the racial dynamics of it as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot more I want to explore with that in this mm-hmm. poem. I grew up in Avondale, Arizona. Mm-hmm. There's just not a lot of black people out there. Mm-hmm. There's also not a lot of black people really in the state of Arizona, proportionally mm-hmm. to other races. So that's kind of just the reality of the state. Mm-hmm. But um well also African Americans are like twelve percent of the total American population. Totally yes, total American so population. It's not a lot. It's period. not a lot in general, right? Yeah. So like yeah, furthermore you gotta yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> In this poem, what I found difficult was after I kind of established this number of the black boys, I think, because it spoke so highly to tokenization mm-hmm. and a lack of racial solidarity just mm-hmm. because of so few numbers. Mm-hmm. I felt like just mentioning that, hopefully, for the listeners or readers who were hip, that that would be enough, sort of, to yeah. clue them into that dynamic of the interaction. Right. I think, yeah, for, for certain readers, definitely. But there are a lot of people who consider themselves liberal, but they think, oh, I have one black friend. It's enough. That's Right, yeah. And that's <laughs> so, kind of the problem. Right? Yeah. Totally. So there was a line, right? And 
I took it out. So this line, I run from Hannah, but I want to be touched. Want to see myself in the lines for open palm, like a marker on the sleeve paper. Yeah, I love um, that line. The marker you. on the loose leaf paper. Yeah, that went through a lot of transformations. And at one point, this line was, it's already suddenly racialized, I mm-hmm, think. Mm-hmm, you know? yeah, yeah. But it was a lot more obviously racialized. Oh, okay. um, it read, like, I want to see my black on her white hand, like, marker on a white paper or something. I don't know. I had mm-hmm. a lot of different ideas. Yeah. A lot of different images I was playing with of black versus white. Right, right. Um, and it's very subtle as well because markers now come in very lined or colors. Right, right, so. exactly. So it's much subtler this way. Yeah. And I felt less, like, I felt literally naked mm-hmm. with the other version of the line. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt yeah. literally like my literal body's being revealed in that line. Yeah. And so I, I had to change it <laughs> yeah. so that I could feel better. Um, but I also feel like the sacrifice now is that I lose some of that direct commentary. Right. On how heavily racialized this incident is. Yeah, yeah. And this is very interesting and in the power dynamics at play, right? That she's not chasing after the white boys to do yes. that to them, to yes. invade their space as much. Yeah. And I was just reading recently because it was National Reading Day or something, yeah. and it was in March, I think, okay. where NPR had published an article about how we need to revisit what's appropriate for children's reading because somebody like Dr. Seuss has actually had a very troubled past in terms of dealing with racial history yeah. that people don't think about, and people are so used to quoting Dr. Seuss. Despite his rhymes, are yeah, they're, they're awesome rhymes, but yeah. they, yeah. just a lot of problems in his background. Then nobody talks about that not enough people are aware of. And one of the statistics that they were saying is that I think something like by three-year-old or by five-year-old, children already understand racial dynamics. I think it was three because it was shockingly young. And that's why the article kind of took the argument that somebody like the Dr. Seuss, we should not read that when we're young. Because these troublesome narratives should not be introduced so young. Maybe they should be introduced later in maybe yeah. like a literature anal- analytical yes. analy- yeah. analysis yeah. class or something. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. So she was nine, basically, around yeah, third yeah. grade. Yeah, eight or nine. Yeah, we yeah. were all around that age. Yeah. So you guys already passed that age. Whether it's three or five year old, you already oh, passed yeah. the age. So the racial dynamics are already ingrained. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly interesting that Mm -hmm. this particular narrative that she's going after, in particular, you guys. And she felt okay to do that, and she kind of forcing her power. Yeah. Kind of. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I remember being aware of race at a very young age. I mean, at this time in my life, I would not say that I was conscious of it, mm-hmm. but I would say now, too, shortly after, I would say fifth grade, sixth grade, mm-hmm. I was aware, I was conscious of it. Mm-hmm. It was something that I could probably speak on. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Just the experiences you must have had. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I like to talk about these things, racial dynamics and whatnot, and this is something also I've worked on for a long time. Mm-hmm. So when you said 
the first two lines basically she's a blonde girl and you have a crush on her mm -hmm. I thought already oh that's interesting mm -hmm. and why do we have crushes why are, why do we have crushes on blonde people especially yes. right. what is it about socialization that yeah. we've had that said this is the pinnacle of what we should have right. a crush on right totally totally I, this, I have another story same time in my life third grade mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember most people who sat at my third grade table mm -hmm. it was Bonnie McHale I'm using people's real names whatever um, <laughs> there was a girl named Raquel her mom was a substitute teacher and she would always sub for our class mm -hmm. so that was kind of cool and there was another girl named Ashley and I think this girl who I um, omit her real name but she either also sat at our table or she sat at our table at one point and was moved or something like that mm -hmm. but I was remember being the only boy I don't necessarily fully identify as a demi boy mm -hmm. I was raised to identify as a boy I remember being the only boy at the table and I had a crush on Ashley, who was also blonde, mm -hmm. and Raquel, who was, I guess the correct term would be Latinx, because I don't want to say, you know, an ethnicity, and it's not actually where, mm -hmm. where her people are from, but uh, she had a crush on me. Okay. I did not have a crush on her. Mm -hmm. I had a crush on the blonde girl. Yeah. And that was, yeah, same, same time, third grade. Mm -hmm. So I've definitely thought a lot about the politics of attraction. Right. Who's attractive and why, and at what age do we identify what is being attractive? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think I think a lot of people have desirability. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I don't know if you read. There was a big deal out of this article about dating, and it said basically black women are ranked as the, the least desirable. Yes, yes, which is. Like, yeah, this is a huge number of people that you're putting that label on. Right, right. Yeah. And also, especially given things like colorization, it's also interesting that because they're not even going into that level of depth or nuance. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. I mean, something like that is so troubling because the process of slavery in the U.S. was so particularly brutal to black women. Yeah. And the amount of sexual assault sexual violence black women suffered at the hands of white men mm -hmm. to then be hundreds of years later deemed by the same white patriarchal system as the least desirable mm -hmm. right it's really complicated fucked up thing that it's transgenerational yeah. and it hasn't really gone away because there is that continues to be over sexualization of black women at the same time that they're deemed unattractive <laughs> like, like what <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's two opposing yes. they don't even make right? sense no, together. There's right? just there's no space for humanness, you know. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. And in the the second episode of April, I read a poem that's about how media is perpetuating these stereotypes, this hierarchical ideation of what's the most attractive mm -hmm. to what's the least attractive. Mm -hmm. And you can see that from both who gets to play the hero. Yeah. And then who's never shown, yeah. who never shows up or yeah. seldom shows up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just totally these gradations. I do not like going to the movies. Mm. And I haven't for a very long time because I'm hyper aware of race. Mm. Specifically, I would say maybe race and gender, but definitely mm. race. Yeah. And movies, blockbuster movies. Yeah, and especially those. Yes. God. And it's just so painful, you know. People, mm -hmm. my friends always want to go see such and such movie, such and such movie. I can't do it because if I do, I'll be picking it apart the whole time. Mm -hmm. I, I can't watch TV. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I do the same thing. Yeah. And not to say that I'm, I don't watch things that are problematic, because I do. Right, right, um, right. But something about specifically, like, movies and television shows that are live action, mm-hmm. you know? Like, mm-hmm. if I'm looking at live action people, I'm picking them apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Do you mean live action? Do you mean SNL something like that? Or do no, you... I just mean like if it's not animated. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> right, like. But even animated, you can pick oh, it apart. I can oh pick my it god, apart too, it's totally. the same thing. But I, I think that there's a chance for me to suspend my disbelief. Right, more so. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a chance for me to do okay. that more so yeah. than when I'm looking at an actor who was filmed doing something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially with these blockbusters, right? Because. Yes. They're meant to be seen on the big screen, and they do look so much better on the big screen. Mm-hmm. But then you're like, I'm spending this money to support what? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it's so frustrating. Yeah. And you say this, and you become the minority in pointing these out, and people yeah. make you feel like you're nitpicking. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, yeah, because you're not on the receiving end of it. Yeah. Bingo. That's why you feel that. That's why you feel attacked, right? Because, you know, we're talking about primarily white, cis, head men, you know, and women that feel the need to get upset when someone points out that all the dark-skinned people are bad guys or, Mm. you know, that all the women in the movie only talk when they're talking about a guy or, like, Mm. you know, all of the numerous things that plague all of these yeah. Movies, you know, yeah. have played them forever. And the people who get the most upset are, you know, the people who are used to literally seeing themselves in media their entire lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, or even people who are raised to believe that that is the system, that is the correct system, that is the system that they should uphold, even if they're being disadvantaged. Yeah. Which is yeah. even sadder. It yeah. is. It is. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, this is actually bad for you, right. too, yeah. so... You're not included in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure why you're fighting against this. You yeah. Know? So, so that, that's the weirdest thing, but, yeah, people are people. We're, we don't always make sense. Yeah, no, we're not perfect at all, at all, so, you know? Yeah, but, yeah, it's so frustrating. So, yeah, it's really great that you, you mention it. And that you include that extra layer in so that when people read it. I think one of the wonderful things about this poem is that it has staying power. It can withstand reading after reading. Mm-hmm. And you'll discover more every time. It's an, it's an onion. It's an onion. Yes, layers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's what's so wonderful about it. And I don't know if mine is a little onion, but certainly I talk about something similar and also I took distance because it's not about well in a way it's almost worse the betrayal of the of friends who turned out to be enablers mm-hmm. so I'll read that it's called indelible in the hippocampus strolling two blocks from my residence seeking sanctuary in a community growing hostile toward this transplant chasing a better life but marginalized through historical mistrust grown out of prejudice, adding layers of otherness because she, I, dared to speak up against an assault by a pervy resident, stepped into a cocooned trap because the police refused to investigate, the judge refused to grant a restraint, that beautiful living space basked 
in the warmth of a winter's fire, an idealized budding communal friendship will soon conspire to prove its disdain toward an acquaintance framed as the other to protect their own long-term predator, and lies are buttressed against nuanced facts. Given priority, absent the system's desire to deal an even hand for shielding those already in power, as I fled in the night toward a safer harbor, frightful of another assault, he'd be encouraged to pursue after he'd witnessed their enabling those short two blocks stretched to a length unending, more gaslit than a nineteenth-century Champs-Elysees. Don't demand from me forgiveness when those words of apologies come with rationalizations to hitch the yoke of responsibility onto one who ran but could not get away, weighed down by sickness and exhaustion, used as excuses to further violate. I can't offer absolutions when I'm kept busy fending off daggers. Now a year removed from this heartbreak, though I've been repeatedly prevented from seeking justice, I swore I would transfer their power to those without patronage, help augment the voices of those forced to whisper, and I'm keeping my word with my actions to counter the hypocrisy of those polite impostors, more keen to preserve their comforting lies than to dismantle the nightmares of their creation. The first time that I heard that poem, I remember feeling a holding, like it's almost like you're holding your hand very close to a flame. Mm. I can sense a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. in the poem. Mm-hmm. Also, you're picking your words very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. Everything is very concise to the point. Even though your lines are, I think, kind of long, mm-hmm. and when you break them, it's kind of unpredictable, mm-hmm. but everything is still very, very methodical. Mm-hmm. The poem also makes me feel it's like a dulled anger. Mm-hmm. Like, there's more beneath the surface, but it's not for that poem. Mm. It's definitely emotional distance. Despite the fact that this is one of those poems that I'm like, I can't read that in front of judges. So what was what was your process writing this poem? <laughs> it's weird. I can't recall exactly because I had written it pretty recently. And I've written many, many others similar to you. Like we're just processing the same events over and over again. And every time it's a little less horrendous when you revisit, but it's still there. You can still kind of like the dull pain that you felt when hearing it. I don't think I wrote this specifically to, definitely not for the story slam. I wrote it more because I was doing podcasts. Mm. And I was thinking of why I'm doing podcasts. Mm. And this is one of the reasons. Because in the literary world, as the wider world, the general world, there is an overwhelmingly underrepresentation of the voices of women, the voices of people of color, and even less so the voices of women, women of color in the poetry world and in the prose world. Both there's that tokenism, even for people who consider themselves liberal, there's still that tokenism. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was trying to explain to someone 
is that our playing field is so much smaller. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, than for a cisgender white male. That it's so much more competitive. So then there's so much, by necessity, there's so much less of representation. So much fewer voices gets heard because of that. And then each voice carries so much more weight because of that. Yeah. That they become their own stereotypes in some ways. Yeah, right. I th- yeah, totally. Like, do you mean um, sort of like in order to succeed? Like, quote-unquote succeed like in the system that they're in? That is one aspect, but what, what I was talking about was more, the fewer voices there are, the more likely their voices, their story, their narratives become the standard narrative uh, of what people come in contact with. Yes, 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 yes. Like, yes. if you think of during the Cosby show, mm-hmm. All in the Family and the Jeffersons came a little bit before, right? They, but they overlap a little bit. Yeah. But there were like three, basically three storylines yeah. of African American life yeah. in America. Yeah. Margaret Cho Show was one storyline, very short-lived storyline yeah. yeah. on TV yeah, of yeah. Asian Americans, yeah. Asian Americans. Right. Even now, uh, what's her name? Minlin. Oh, terrible with names. Mindy. Mindy. Yeah. I don't know her last name, but I know yeah. the comedian and yeah. actor. Yeah. yeah. So she's like one voice of the Indian American yeah. <laughs> narrative. The other one is Apu for Gossicks. So it's very easy to stereotype those because they're only one perspective. Yes. yes. They yes, they can represent a real perspective, but it's still only one. And when there's only one voice, people who are not familiar with it and I was said this in another podcast too, is that we can live in this day and age, in 2019, we can live segregated for the rest of our lives and never have meaningful contact with people of another color mm-hmm. or even class or, you know, so many divides. And so TV becomes almost our first contact with other people of yeah. other backgrounds. And so those stereotypes persist. The fewer there are, the more likely they are the ones they say, oh, if I run into black people, then they're always going to act like this. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to fight that. And that's why representation to me is always the first line of defense, the first line of attack as well that we need to fix. Mm. Because it has such power. It has global power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It totally communicates globally. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea if I answered your question. You did, you did. (laughs) Um, I'm curious now that I understand a bit more about your intention and how much you value representation, where or how do you see race in indelible advantage like this? Well, I was talking about the otherness, right, and the prejudice. Okay. So I found out throughout the last couple of years, I forget if it's before or after this all happened, and that apparently one of the Asian stereotypes is that Asians cannot be trusted. I always knew about those Asians as the other, as it cannot never be American kind of a stereotype, right? You have to be born elsewhere. People always ask me where I'm from, expecting from some other country. country, Yeah, Yeah, like New York. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, they're like, where do you really come from? Or where do your ancestors come from? They really want to chase that down my genealogy. I'm like, you know? (laughs) Interesting. 
thanks for the interest. <laughs> but not really, because they don't really care. No. They just want to place me in a place where they're comfortable. Yes. So it does come in, but it's very subtle. That's why I put the otherness in. I put the specific line through historical mistrust. Yes. Because yes. the Japanese were interred. Yes, yes, it's World War II. Um, even though both the Germans and the Italians also faced backlash, they didn't face the same kind. Yeah. They weren't pushed into a camp. They weren't yeah. forced to lose everything yeah. and go into into a different part of the country from the coast, mm-hmm. move physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can tell the gradations of mm-hmm. racism. There's definitely there was definitely racism towards non-waspy white. So it's this hierarchy. Again, we're going right, back to totally, the hierarchy, yeah. right? There's a hierarchy of, of race, a racial hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. Even within the white community, yes. it definitely is. Because I remember I was on a train going east into Long Island, and there was somebody who talked about somebody who was Italian using a stereotype. It was really strange. And I was like, oh my god, that still exists. That was a couple of years ago. I was like, wow, that still exists, that intra-racial yes. prejudice. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. all branches in the same tree. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Basically. Another thing I like about this is how many multi-syllabic words you use. Oh, yeah. You know, just, I guess, like, on a, just a, a technical level or, like, an aesthetic level. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool because I often don't see a lot of poems where the poet is ending their lines on multisyllabic words. Mm, I didn't realize that myself. I mean, I do choose my words carefully, like you said. One of the things I hate is repeating words. Mm. There are some words that you can't help, like the two. There's just nothing you can't do about that, you know. I try not to repeat imagery, even though I've noticed that multiple poems within the same period might have similar, might share similar imagery, but I'll use them differently. So I always try to change something. I don't like to read my poems more than once to the same audience. <laughs> you know, those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I might mention that because I haven't really noticed that particular aspect. Well, you know, I'm also a rapper, so I think a lot about sound Yeah. and word. And it's really cool that I have the opportunity to, like, look at it on the page, you know, because I can already just pick it up so many times, like, investigate, restraint, mm-hmm. fire, friendship. Mm-hmm. other predator you know just moments where whether intentional or not like you're doing a lot with sound yeah yeah and that's yeah that's just I like that <laughs> thank you yeah my poems tend to be more rhythmic than rhyming mm, okay yeah I have rhyming poems where I'm very careful in terms of the rhyme I feel like I sometimes lose content because I'm trying to rhyme so much yeah I know classic <laughs> yeah right <laughs> But I always try to write content first, and then, you know, yeah. you can always edit later. Exactly. But there are definitely some rhyming aspects, and but you can feel the rhythm in it, right? Yeah. But, oh, yeah, So yeah. I would have words that are short words that's next to long words, like pervy resident. Right. You know, something yeah. like that. So the juxtaposition will play a certain sound. I feel like my poem is definitely much heavier on rhythm than rhyme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something about this poem that I, that I liked a lot. Again, I remember the first time I heard it, I wasn't able to catch as much of it as I was once I read it again, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. right? So the first time I heard it, a lot of what I heard was sound mm. and rhythm and very subtle line. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I put together some of it, right. you know, I could tell, you know, there's definitely keywords in here that 
mm-hmm. helped me understand what it's about. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it wasn't really until I had it in front of me that I was like, okay, now I'm really, really able to take time with the content. Mm-hmm. And I also think something that I noticed is how differently you read it at wordplay and then now. Yeah. The way you read it now was much, and I, it's probably the fact that there's not an audience here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's also why I read mine so differently because there's not an audience, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you took more time with the lines. Yeah. And even just the quality of your voice, the firmness of your voice, you know, mm-hmm. and I could tell you felt a lot safer. So I think that also was another thing that helped me be able to pick out all of these nuances. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. Each reading, live as opposed to reading the poem, mm-hmm. the different interactions, the different mm-hmm. media through which we experience the pieces yes, yes. brings about different nuances, right? Exactly. And that first time you heard it was the first time I read it. Oh, and wow. first time I, after I wrote this, because I wrote this pretty recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I tend to read the newest things that okay, I write. Yeah. I think it was February when I yeah, read wow. it. Yeah, fresh up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, really fresh. And I, because of this thing where I'm getting bored, I'm like, ah, oh, I read that already. Yeah, yeah I remember that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I admire that. That's really, really great. Thank yeah. you. And also, I, I think it all speaks to the quality, the safety I felt as Wordplay Cafe. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's yeah, a yeah. very welcoming audience mm-hmm. as well. So it's definitely safer. I never thought about reading that for the story slam. Also, because I already had that other right. slam experience. Yeah. I was like, never again. Right. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. And of course, now. I, I know I'm doing the podcast. I'm very aware. So I, I also know that I tend to swallow my words mm. when I'm nervous or when I'm talking fast and because I'm editing the podcast as yeah. well. So I'm like, oh, my God, this uh, is what I sound like. So you hear <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. Yeah. So now when I'm reading, when, when I do my reading, I tend to be very deliberate with my words. I yeah. tend to be much more steady. But still, I trip myself up. This thing I haven't said out loud, but I've admitted to myself, it seems like I write, tongue twisters for myself mm. <laughs> yeah I could see it I mean definitely thinking you know there's a lot of syllables you know lots yeah. of syllables and then also like I was saying earlier like stepped into a cocooned trap is like such a subtle internal vibe you mm-hmm. know? I could see why that could trip you up <laughs> yeah yeah and I know I have problems with certain English words oh. certain words that come together I don't necessarily know that those specific words will give me problems but I do know that I can't like I wrote a rap I wrote a couple of raps actually more than a couple a few raps where I'm like this needs to be spoken loudly as a rap in a very deliberate rhythm in a very consistent rhythm I can't read this like that because I don't have the ability I don't tend to read fast my words tend to come slower so sometimes I'm like oh I'm gonna have to get somebody else to read this because this needs to be wrapped up so at some points when I write my poems I'm almost like acting the role of a lyricist Mm, totally yeah I, I, I feel that I think that's really cool for me personally I see the line I think between rap and poetry is I think much, much thinner than it already is. I don't think there is a line. For me, like, yeah. especially rap, right? Because ancient times poetry was read to music. So right. that is rap. It's kind of, I mean, yeah. come on, yeah. give me a break. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like, again, this artificial division, right? Because I remember 
There was some female singer on Colbert uh, who is light-skinned uh, African-American, and she sang a song that was very coony, very just like... And then, I don't know if you noticed, after they have music on, when they go to commercial break, they have a spot now for iTunes. And the iTunes will say, well, if you like that song, look for blah, blah. And after her song, which is very, not pop, but very melodic song that, you know, you would think kind of Sinatra, but modern sense, would belong to maybe a pop ca- category, but not dance pop. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah, totally. The category that came up was hip hop. I'm like, why is this? No, 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 no. I think it was R&B, R&B. I was like, why is this R&B just because she's black? Jesus! I was so pissed. I was just like yeah. angry at my computer at the time because I watch shows on my computer. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, yeah. I don't know, get it, get I wish I had a customer service phone number. I would have totally screamed into that. Like, yeah. Why is she being categorized as R&B? Yeah. So this categorization thing, I understand for file saving, you need to have a system. In order to have a library, you need to have a system of categorizing. But there are genres, I mean, at least pop up with different genres, right? She could be R&B, she could be something else as well, because her song fell into many possibilities. Don't just categorize her because of her skin color. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, and I think that particularly when we talk about poetry versus rap, race is, I think, the major, yeah, the major determinant. You know, that that's what I feel as well. I know the kind of music I like. I prefer softer music because most of the time I don't listen to music in a car. So my opportunity to listen to music tends to be very deliberate. Mm-hmm. So when I want to listen to music, it tends to be because I want something soothing. Right. Whereas in a club, I don't really choose. Or in right. a mall or something, yeah. I don't choose. So whatever pops up, pops up. And I actually like those experiences because then I'm exposed to different genres of music oh. I don't deliberately choose. Yeah. But it doesn't mean I always have to choose white music. People think of white music as this melodic soft and black music as hard and rap and hip-hop. But no, there's a lot of crooners who yeah. were black, who, you know, of other color, people of other colors, you know? It's just really weird. So you have this, again, this stereotype, even you know, within every sector of life. Yeah. Yeah. For sure, yeah. It's uh, ever present. It really is. Yeah, we can't really escape it, right? No, no, no. <laughs> like, That's why both of our work is always speaking to it. It yeah. does, you know, like either in very subtle ways or in more apparent ways. We can't help it because it's not something we can escape. Yeah, sometimes we want to, right? Because hell, life will be so much easier and we don't always have the bandwidth to fight. Totally not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In any case, you can tell us where we can hear you read next. Yeah, right now I have one thing planned on May 25th. Oh, um, it's going to be a spoken word storytelling event. Nice. Um, it'll be put on by my friend Dane. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a poet and rapper as well, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited because he puts on really, really dope events. That's awesome. So, yeah. Is that in the valley? Yes, and that's actually all of the details that I have right now. The best thing I can do is give my social media, and if you're yes. interested in hearing more of my work and following me and coming out to the show on Saturday, May 25th, mm-hmm. then you can follow me on my Instagram. That's pretty much where I do everything, and that's mm-hmm. at 
Skinny Black Sean, S K I N N Y B L K S E A N. And that's why I post all of my upcoming shows. Right. It's the end of the school year right now, so I'm not doing a ton of shows, but things are changing, and I can sense that very, very soon. During and after summer, I'll be doing a lot more shows. Great. Well, thank you so much for yeah. talking, for commiserating. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Good. I'm glad um, you did that. Yeah, it's just awesome to talk about art and, yeah. you know, politics and experiences and yeah, yeah. We don't talk about it because necessarily we want to, because we have to. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is a part of survival. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We all want to live a good life. Mm-hmm. So, hey. Well, thank you. Yeah. The NPR article I was referring to during our talk summarized research that show even at age three, children begin to form racial biases. And by the age of seven, those biases become fixed. I'm going to put that article link in the episode notes so you can read that for yourselves. When I was saying to Sean about the Jeffersons and the Cosby Show and All in the Family, uh, instead of All in the Family, I meant Good Times. So Good Times of the three shows came first. It aired from 1974 to 1980. The Jeffersons aired from 1975 to 1985. The Cosby Show aired from 1984 to 1992. And from 1990 to 1996, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was also airing. So there was an overlap of two years between that and The Cosby Show. And in 2015, towards the end of Mendy Cowling's The Mendy Project, five-year show run, Aziz Asari and Alan Yen's The Master of None began to air, and it ended in 2017. Lastly, while I was editing this episode, I finally remembered that I had written my poem, Indelible in the Hippocampus, to a prompt for Workplay Cafe, and the prompt was Nights to Forget. Given the sensitive topics we touched on in today's discussion, I do want to remind everybody that help is available. You don't have to be alone or feel alone. I have provided in the episode notes RAIN's national hotline number. Uh, RAIN, if you do not know, is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Its national sexual assault hotline is 1-800-656-4673. Again, that's 1-800-656-4673. They will connect you to local organizations that helps abuse and sexual assault victims. So please, please reach out and find the help that you deserve. Again, you do not have to be alone in this. You do not have to suffer alone. You can talk to someone who will be happy to help you. And that brings us to the end of the show for today. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Please remember to follow us on SoundCloud, Instagram, as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. Again, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at the upper right-hand side of our Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.